Our scripture reading today is from John, starting in um, chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You know, one of the things uh, that I will do when I uh, counsel with a couple before they get married, which is something that I spend some time doing, is uh, talk to them about their expectations for what marriage is going to be like. You know, there's all, there's all kinds of different ways that marriages can work, different ways that roles are assigned and that, that couples work together. But what can, what's really important is that couples have the same expectations when they come into a marriage. If he is expecting, uh, you know, seven days a week to come home to a home-cooked meal and she does all the cooking and cleaning and she thought they were going to share this work, then that can be, you know, that can be an issue. Um, or maybe if, uh, if she is expecting that when there's conflict, they're going to talk it out immediately 
and they're going to work through it, but he is more of the mindset of, ah, you know what, let's let it blow over, let's wait a couple weeks, and then maybe we'll bring it back up. Those different expectations uh, can lead to a lot of frustration and difficulty in a marriage. Similarly, I got an amen, there we go, um, from, an, from an anonymous donor. Um, similarly, I remember when, when we were expecting, uh, well, when Haley was expecting our first child, Houston, somebody gave us a book called What to Expect When You're Expecting. Right? Because as a, as a new parent, you have no idea what to expect. You have no idea what it's going to be like. You have no idea what, um, you know, what it's going to be like getting the baby here in the early days with the baby. So expectations uh, are key to understand. In this passage, what we have Jesus doing right before his death is helping to set his disciples' expectations for what life in the church, in the world, is going to be like. For what the character of their life following Jesus after his death, resurrection, and ascension, is going to be like. And you have to remember, these guys had no frame of reference whatsoever for what a church was or what it was going to mean to be in a church. And so the way that Jesus lays it out for them is that being his followers, being in the church, both demands more and offers more than they can imagine. Right? That it demands an intense level of willingness to suffer and to sacrifice. But it offers this incredible promise of the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, living in them and with them. So it's this incredible promise. You're going to bear the divine presence in your life. But as you carry that divine presence out into the world, you can anticipate that at times this is going to lead to, well, the same kind of life that it led to in Jesus' life, a life of cross-bearing, a life of suffering. And so uh, that's what Jesus uh, is talking about here, that it both offers more and demands more than we usually think. They didn't have a frame of reference for it, and this often confounds our frame of reference. You know, we, unlike the disciples, we do have a context for what the word church means. Right? If you were to go and ask people, what is a church? Some people would say, well, it's the, it's the building down in the corner, right? Or if you're in a southern city like this, it's those four buildings down on opposite corners all, out, all throughout the city. Uh, For some of us, it would be a meeting time, right? It's something you get together and do. You go to church. Uh, For others, maybe, you know, they think from the outside that the church, they think of it as a political group, right? That you hear all the time about how the evangelical church votes or what they think or what they do. You know, one survey of people from the outside looking in at what the church is, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what outsiders think of the church, that it's a group of hypocrites, that it's a judgmental group of people. You know, our expectations are sometimes clouded by just the cultural feel that we have around church, and living in the South in particular, right? Oftentimes we think of the church that is something that actually doesn't offer that much or demand that much, right? It's just a part of the, it's just a part of the architecture of our lives. You know, you, you go to church, and then you go to watch a college football game, and then you, uh, or, you know, it's a part of just what it means to do life, and we don't think that it offers much or demands much. In contrast to that, I was reading an article about the church in India. You know, India now is one of the most dangerous countries on earth in which to be a Christian. Uh, The Hindu majority of that uh, that country has made it very, very difficult uh, to profess faith outwardly in Jesus. And so one group of churches uh, in India asked would-be converts before their baptism to answer these seven questions. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? 
Are you willing to go to the village and to those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than to deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? How's that for expectation management? Right Before you even come into baptism, to count the cost. About is it going to be, are you going to be able to follow through to bear the name of Jesus uh, in a world that's hostile to it? And the reality is, is that for 2,000 years of church history, around the world, that has been more the rule than the exception. Right? It's, we are the exception. The group of people that can follow Jesus and think that it might not cost us social capital, might not cost us our jobs, even our lives. But uh, as Jesus is preparing uh, not only his own disciples, but the thousands of years of disciples who had come after them, we see that the church does uh, bear with it a certain amount of suffering. Our thesis uh, this morning, the central point that we're going to talk about is this. The church is the extended presence of the person and work of Jesus in the world. The church is the the ongoing ministry of Jesus in the world, empowered by His Spirit. First off, what does it look like to be empowered by His Spirit? You know, Jesus here calls the Spirit, in verse 26, the Helper. When the Helper comes, uh, the the Greek word there is paraclete. Sometimes it's translated the Counselor, the Advisor, here, the Helper. That in Jesus' absence, His physical absence, His spiritual presence will come uh, to enliven us, to empower us, and to equip us to do the work. But what does the Spirit, the Helper, do in our lives? Well, what what Jesus tells us here that the, the Helper does, is does two things. He reveals to us the reality of sin, and then applies and reveals to us all that is in Jesus for us. He shows us the reality of our sin. Look what Jesus says, uh, that, that he comes in verse uh, 16, or chapter 16, verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Right? That the Spirit comes to open the eyes of the world, to see sin as sin. Right? Human beings uh, as a whole have a vested interest in not acknowledging sin. Right? Most of us have other reasons and other excuses that we give for what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with our own lives. But we lack a willingness and even, even the language to say, no, no, what's wrong with me, what's wrong with us corporately is that we've abandoned God, that we've rejected God, that we've sought life on our own terms. And the Spirit comes to open our eyes to see reality for what it is, that though we are made for a life with God, Through sin, we've turned our back on that life and made a mess of things in the process. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, explaining the the way we encounter the world, he says, the God of this world, referring to to Satan, has blinded people who are apart from Christ. That apart from Christ, we live with a certain blindness to the realities of life. You know, uh, I think I've seen in recent weeks the levels at which we struggle uh, to articulate what's wrong with the world. You know, uh, about two weeks ago, there was the, the devastating uh, school shooting in Parkland, Florida, very close to home. And if you've had the uh, ill fortune of being on social media over the last two weeks, uh, you have seen your, your social media feed 
crammed with people offering their explanation for why things like this happen. Right on the one hand, you have a, a, kind of the first wave of people saying that it's a gun control issue. Right? That if, 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 if people didn't have access to guns, then this kind of thing wouldn't happen. And then you have a counter movement that says, no, 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 this was a mental health issue. Right? This, this was a boy who was broken psychologically and emotionally. And then you have another round of articles that come out and say, no, no, it's broken families. Most school shooters, most, actually most, most all perpetrators of violence uh, are men who come from fractured homes. And so maybe that's, that's what's wrong. And then, of course, you get, no, no, it's video games. Right? It's, it's the violence that, that these kids glorify and see in their video games. You never hear anyone, and can you imagine what it would be like if somebody stood on, on, on the news or in Congress and said, I, I, I know what the problem is. It's sin. Sin is the problem. It's the sinful human heart that makes guns threat, threatening and violent and capable of doing incredible damage. It's the sinful human heart that leads uh, not only to fractured families, but fractured souls and psychological issues. It's, it's sin that leads to fractured societies. Sin that leads us to glorify violence in video games. It's like, uh, it's like if you take a glass and drop it on your tile floor. This happened in my house last night. <laughs> if you take a, take a glass and you drop it, it doesn't shatter in a neatly predictable way. It doesn't shatter along clean lines. It shatters utterly. It shatters into a million little pieces. And that's what the fall has done to humanity. It shattered us along all of those fault lines. Social and emotional and spiritual. All of them. And yet we're blind to it. We make excuses for it. We say, no, 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 it's not sin. It's maybe, maybe it's, it, I'm, not, I'm not a sinner. I'm a victim. Maybe I'm not a sinner. I'm just misunderstood. Maybe I'm not a sinner. It's the, what other people have done to me. And the Spirit, Jesus says, comes to open our eyes, to say, no, 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 here's the cause, here's the root beneath the symptoms. It's to convince and to convict of sin. And so the Spirit leads us to repentance. It leads us to when the rest of the world, you know, i got to say, usually I don't respond particularly well when someone brings up an issue of sin in my life. When someone says, Dave, you're selfish. Dave, you're arrogant. Dave, you're angry. Dave, you're a jerk. Right? My first, my first impulse is to go, you are. <laughs> right? You're the great big stupid jerk. But the Spirit leads us into a posture of repentance. A posture that has an attitude that says, I want to know. I want, I, Jesus, help me to see more. I know a little bit of my sin. Right? But Jesus, help me to see more. Help me to see more of my anger. Help me to see more of my selfishness. Help me to see more of the ways that sin affects me. David, the psalmist, uh, prayed, Search me and know me, God. Even in, the, even in the hidden places, search me and know me. And that's what the Spirit leads us to. But if that's all the Spirit did, the Spirit would not be much of a helper. Right? If, if Jesus says, hey, don't worry, I'm going to send the helper and he's going to show you just what a sinner you are. That would be, at best, kind of bad news. But no, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit, and He's going to bring conviction of sin. But also, He's going to shine a light on who I am in the grace that I offer you. So He's going to show you your sin. But then He's going to take what Jesus says here. He's going to take all that is mine. Chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. He, is going to, he, uh, he will glorify me, speaking of the Spirit, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here's the mystery of what's going on here. Jesus is saying that when I die, when I rise from the dead, when I'm ascended, that this is going to be for your good because then I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. In keeping with with long-standing prophecy and expectations about what the uh, life in the Messiah would be like. Joel chapter 2 says, In those days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to go earn some stuff on the cross. Right? Through my perfect holy life, uh, through my righteous death, I'm going to earn and purchase your salvation and your justification, your adoption as God's children your holiness and your sanctification, your right to be risen from the dead through my resurrection, your glorification, your ability to be seated at the right hand of my, through me being seated at the right hand of God eternally. I'll offer to bring you there with me. And Jesus says, I'm going to do all that. But then what the Spirit's going to do is He's going to take all of that treasure that I've earned and He's going to apply it to you. He's going to declare it to you. So it's not something that's outside of you, but something that's actually within you. One theologian, John Murray, uh, wrote a great book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And the basic thesis of his book is that Jesus accomplished our redemption on the cross. And then the Spirit applies the redemption of Jesus, applies the cross of Jesus into the life of the believer. He's continually pointing us to Jesus, to all that's within Jesus, to the fact that we're forgiven and loved and adopted and made holy and righteous in Jesus Martin Luther, uh, the Protestant reformer, said this about the Spirit. He says, the poor, the poor Holy Spirit doesn't know any other subject than Jesus. Right? All the Spirit knows how to do, all He knows how to talk about is Jesus. He continually draws our eyes to Jesus. John Calvin said, as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from Him. He had to become ours and dwell within us. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to Himself. The Spirit is the seal that seals us in Christ so that all that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. You know, in this day and age, uh, where churches often struggle to to articulate what makes them unique as a church, well, we're a gospel-centered church, we're a missional church, we're a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church, one question that, that people will often ask, is, is your church a spirit-filled church? Right? Are your, is your church a Holy Ghost church? And from this passage, the answer to that question, whenever anyone in a church is asked that, is yes, absolutely. How do you know if the church is a spirit-filled church? How do you know if your life as a believer is a spirit-filled life? Well, here's the question. Are you walking in an ongoing repentance of sin? Are you walking in a way that you're every day wanting to discover more and more of your need for your Savior? And are you growing and pressing in more and more in your love and adoration and gratitude for who Jesus is and what He's done for you? That is the Spirit-filled life. That is what a life filled and charged with the Spirit means. There's nowhere in the Scriptures that the the Holy Spirit or the the evidence of the Spirit is given simply as one emotional experience of God or one style of worship or one way of being or doing church. It simply means to be growing in your depth of your understanding of your sin and your worship of your Savior. 
That's what Paul means when he says, keep in step with the Spirit. What he means when he says, don't quench the Spirit, don't grieve the Spirit. It means walk in daily repentance and faith, trusting Jesus more and more to cover over your sin. And so, Jesus fills the church with his Spirit. He enlivens us with his his actual presence. And then he says, go. You are going to bear my presence into the world. You're going to take that spirit and you are going to be the continuing work and presence of Jesus in the world. You know, the disciples, again, would have had no frame of reference for what it meant to be disciples without their teacher, without Jesus, their leader, their Messiah. And so they never would have had a category for understanding what it meant to say, no, no, Jesus is going to die, he's going to raise from the dead, he's going to be ascended. And then over the next thousands of years, Tiny little groups of his followers are going to cluster together in cities and in towns to worship him, to represent him, to serve their communities. And over time, those little cells, those little churches, are going to come to dominate the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. And they're going to, they're going to fill the world, strange places where they speak different languages. That From sea to sea, the church is going to fill not only the Mediterranean world, but, but China and Africa. Uh, Europe, even America, right? That, that, that little, those little churches are going to go into places that they didn't even know existed yet and carry with it the actual presence of Jesus into the world. You know, this is what Jesus means in, verse, in uh, chapter 14, which we looked at a few weeks ago. When Jesus says to his, his disciples, greater works than these will you do in my name. Greater works than these will you do in my name. Right, we know that that can't mean for the church that they're going to do qualitatively greater works than Jesus. Right, there's no way that even the best church, right, Jesus won the salvation of the world on the cross and then rose from the dead. Right, none of us are going to do that. Right, that job is done. Um, nobody's going to do works greater than that. But what the church can do is works quantitatively greater. Many and more uh, works that spread over all the world no longer constrained just to one man and his followers in Jerusalem, in Galilee, but now all over the world in places like this one, bearing witness through their lives and their service and their proclamation to the Lordship of Jesus. This is why Luke, uh, the author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, when he starts his account of the church in Acts, says, earlier I wrote another volume of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Right? He refers to all of Jesus' life as, as what he began to do. That was just the beginning of who Jesus is and what he does. Now he continues to do and to teach and to serve through his church, colonizing this world for the kingdom of heaven. But, and this is what Jesus spends a, a good portion of this, this section on, as you bear the witness of Jesus, as you start to live as he lived and love as he loves, you can expect that the world might react similarly to you as it did to Jesus, right? That it might at times be drawn to the beauty uh, of that kind of life, but that at other times it's going to hate you. It's going to resist you. Uh, It's going to require suffering. I'll never forget one day, you know, when you're at the checkout line at a supermarket, there's all the magazines that sell, you know, weight loss tips and celebrity gossip and all those kind of things. I remember seeing on one magazine cover, in an effort to sell magazines, uh, the headline, Jesus' Tips for a Long and Healthy Life. 
And I thought, this, 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 I don't know that they know the, Jesus' story. Uh, he, lived, he lived much of his life homeless. At his best, he was obscure. Uh, at his worst, he was very often rejected and hated. And then he died at 33 um, by an unjust murder, essentially. So you look to Jesus for all sorts of things, but a, but a happy, healthy life that lasts well into your 70s or 80s is not one of them. Right? The way of Jesus, uh, what the way the Synoptic uh, Gospels put it, is a life of taking up your cross to follow him. It's a life of intentionally bearing his suffering on behalf of the world. You know, as we come to model Jesus, we should expect that we, as Jesus was, will at times be strange in the world. Right now, we all know that Christians can be strange. Right? It seems like every day we're seeing some story of some strange group of Christians doing something somewhere. But there is, there's an unescapable strangeness to the Christian life. That it really is a supernatural life in this world. Citizens of another world living in this one. And at its best, the church has a kind of strange beauty to it. That the world, because Jesus says here that as the Holy Spirit bears witness to me about you, you're going to bear witness to me in the world. And that will start to make us look a little bit strange. And Jesus says that what the world does with my strangeness is what they're going to do with yours. If they accept me, they're going to accept you. If they reject me, they're going to reject you. And this has been the story of the church for 2,000 years bearing this strange beauty to it that some have been drawn to and others have hated and persecuted. Right? It was the strange beauty of the church that led to its early infamy in the Roman Empire, uh, where even governors and emperors, when they were asked, what is up with the Christians? They said, oh, those are the ones who go to the trash heaps where we discard our unwanted children, and they pick them up and they adopt them and they raise them. That was the strange beauty that was there. It's the same strange beauty that led other small groups of Christians in China today in a secular and communist regime with strict rules on how many uh, children a family is allowed to have. That led them to start a place with a drop window where you could leave your unwanted daughter. And they said, we'll take her, we'll raise her, we'll bear her in our life. The same strange beauty bringing continuity to those things. It was the strange beauty of the church that led the early Christians not to abandon Rome when it was stricken by a plague, but to stay there when everybody who had the means to do so fled, to stay there and to care for the poor and to bury the dead and to care for the sick. It's that strange impulse that led Christians 2,000 years later to run towards the AIDS epidemic in Africa and say, we're going to move towards the slums and start health clinics and start orphanages and do what we can to restore dignity. It's the family likeness of the church over 2,000 years. It's the same strange beauty uh, that led some in the church. Uh, the early church was known in a world uh, where it was commonplace for powerful men to essentially do what they wanted with whom they wanted sexually, where they claimed absolute rights over their employers, over, over their employees, over those who were uh, lesser of social status than them. And it was the strange beauty of the church that said a husband should be a man of one wife. And he should seek to protect those who are powerless, those who are prone to victimization. And it's that same strange beauty that shows up in the church in a world that's gone mad in our own day with pornography, with sexual violence and exploitation. 
to try to call ourselves and our world to some sort of sanity, to chastity, to faithfulness, to protect the weak, to protect the vulnerable. You see, that strange beauty has been in the church from the beginning. We can at times think that our age is unique, that there was a day and age in which it was easier to be the church, that there was a day and age in which our ethics were more widely embraced. But the fact of the matter is that this is what it means. This is what it means to be Jesus' people. To bear his presence is to bear his strange beauty in the world and at times to suffer for it. But Jesus tells us at the end of chapter 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, the end is not in jeopardy. Jesus in his resurrection and ascension has overcome the world. He will remake all things, whole and healthy and beautiful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you did live a life of remarkable beauty, holiness, love, and goodness. That you also lived a life uh, that was strange to those around you, that led others to hate you, to persecute you, ultimately to kill you. And yet, Lord Jesus, I thank you that we, your church, for all these millennia, have had the calling uh, to bear witness to that in the world. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us comfort in our tribulation, that when we feel different, uh, when we feel isolated and alone, that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to, to realize all that we have in you and to bear witness to your kingdom uh, in the midst of the ruins of this world that we would attest to the coming of the one who's overcome the world, who will take every broken thing in this world and in our lives and make them whole again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.